the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Let me ask the question, perhaps, that has been asked through the ages, maybe one you've even asked for yourself. Who is God? And does God intervene in the affairs of man? You know, it's interesting. Scripture tells us that the Lord is so concerned about our well-being that he in an example, not only cares for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, but even has the very hairs on our head counted, which admittedly for some of us, that job is getting (laughs) easier and easier, but demonstrative of the notion that yes, very much so, God intervenes and cares about the affairs of mankind. And I think sometimes we, we confuse adversity or the challenges of life in a fallen world with God not caring. Let's get some perspective on this broader topic as we're joined today by Dr. Pastor Keith Crosby, Senior Pastor at Hillside Church in San Jose. He has pastored there since 2016. He's got a long background in church ministry. Prior to coming to uh, Hillside, he served in pastoral ministry at a number of churches over the course of some 20 years and um, has a fairly interesting educational background with a BA in political science and an MDiv and, of course, his uh, doctorate in ministry degrees from the Master Seminary. And Pastor Crosby, great to see you. Good to have you with us. Greg, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let's talk a bit about this this question. I mean, it seems to be so fundamental to the faith and and maybe, if anything, in in recent generations, part of that question has changed, meaning that for so long it was a question of, does God care? Sometimes today we see growing numbers in a increasingly secular population, a population that on an increasing basis is unchurched, that even questions, does God, meaning does he even exist? Sure. So with that foundation, and there's been a number of life experiences that you've been through down through the years, and even more recently in your family and in your ministry, I think demonstrative, as we were visiting briefly before we came on the air today, demonstrative of the notion that, yes, indeed, God does care and he does intervene. But to those who say, you know what, Craig, Pastor Crosby, if you knew what I was going through, you would equally have the conclusion that God just must not care. Well, you know, Craig, as we talked about beforehand, you yourself are a cancer survivor, you know, and uh, with my daughter's accident uh, seven years ago, and uh, with my own illness, God allows trials. You know, we live in a fallen world. And somebody once said to me, well, how do I know that God cares? Because the symptoms that we see around us, suffering and sickness and sadness, are the result of our sin, the sin of mankind, the sin of Adam and Eve, Romans five twelve. sin entered the world through one man and then spread to all because all sinned. We're like... These symptoms point us to God because we see that we cannot depend on ourselves. And so the hardship of the world, which is kind of self-inflicted by mankind, God gives us warnings. Just like if a man or a woman has chest pain, they know they have angina. If they didn't have those symptoms, they wouldn't seek medical care. And if we didn't have the symptoms of sin in this world, we wouldn't seek divine care. And and so we, we know that God is, because in Psalm 19, it says, everywhere we look, the heavens are declaring the presence of God, the reality of God, and day-to-day pours forth speech. And we have his word that reveals the mind of God to us. God has not left us without a witness, and he reminds us constantly that he's there and that he cares. And his word is this love letter from another world to help us make sense of our existence. So, yes, life is hard. We we make bad decisions as the human race. Yes, there are consequences, but there's also redemption. There's also salvation. Uh, God sent his son to rescue us, to redeem us. And 
the Bible probably, in my mind, is one of the most significant reminders that he's there because it has something to say about every inch of thread that makes up the fabric of our existence. Everybody can have one, everybody can read one, and everybody can respond to one, and there's no other book like it in the world. So I, I think that evidence of God's existence is a natural revelation to the world around us and the order that's there and the beauty that's there, and the special revelation of his word, and then the results of our sin all point us to God. At Hillside Church, you folks are not only engaged in making disciples, training people to then make disciples, but also global outreach. My goodness, the tentacles of this ministry reach far and abroad across the globe. Speak to that whole perspective for a moment in terms of some of the initiatives that are priorities for uh, your ministry and the ministry and life of the body at Hillside Church San Jose. Well, we look at uh, we look at living in Silicon Valley, the world has come to San Jose. Mission Field's out your back door. Yeah, <laughs> right. You can meet people from every place in the world, and you can talk to people here that you could not talk to in one of their closed countries. And so we, are, we try to be all over that. And, it, and it's, it's even, it's, it's, it's joyful in that the, for lack of a better term, the diversity or the color of our congregation has changed radically as we have done this. And then we're sending pastors to the Congo uh, in about two weeks, three weeks, to train pastors there. Our, our, our missions, we, we're a missions church. We've sent out missionaries, and, and our emphasis is church planting, leadership development, and church strengthening, and that's part of what we'll be doing in the Congo. But for us, the gospel is in the very lifeblood and fabric of this church, this great commission. And so you have people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation here in San Jose Bring them to church, you know, invite them. Sometimes they'll come for a cultural experience and hear the gospel. And then you have this outreach that we do. We try to be a three-dimensional church. You know, we disciple hearts and minds of our own people to equip them to evangelize other people. And we send people abroad. What we say is be one, bring one, build one. Be a real deal Christian who lives out their faith so that you can bring somebody to faith in Christ through your testimony and by sharing the gospel with them, and then we can build them up and strengthen them for ministry to repeat the process, to birth new Christians. And that's how we see ourselves as changing this community and perhaps the world one soul at a time with the message of Jesus Christ. We want to play offense for the kingdom of God. And, you know, it's so much easier to do than some people think or anticipate. I I never forget many years ago traveling in China and meeting with a local underground church leader. And uh, they were talking a bit about the history of the church and that it just started in somebody's living room and then it grew and grew and grew. And now they're meeting in an old hothouse that used to grow mushrooms. In fact, they loosely refer to it as the mushroom church. And in talking with the pastor said, well, just amazing what God has done here in just a few short years. And, you know, as Americans typically do, we're concerned with the numbers and growth and what's the strategy. And so, you know, we posed that uh, question to the pastor and he said, well, you know, we're going to expect with got uh, 2,000 members this year. Next year, we're going to have four. The year after that, we're going to have to have, we'll have eight. And we realized in short order, he was doubling the numbers every year. It's like, what, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute now. Hold on. What church growth seminar are you using? What, what are you, this must be a combination of, of digital technology, broadside, television, radio ad campaigns, all of it. And pastor just simply stopped after he heard all of the, the murmuring and the questions. He said, no, it's very simple. He said, we teach each of our new members in our discipleship training class that over the course of a year to lead one person to Christ. And then we equip that individual as they begin to develop their relationship with Christ and go through discipleship training to then reach one person for Christ. And as we have applied that, taking what Scripture says at face value, we just say, each one, reach one. We have seen since the start of our church that every 12 months, the church doubles in size. Wow. So God is real. If you rely upon the Holy Spirit to empower you to be his witnesses into Judea and Samaria and the other most parts of the earth, that in fact, that kind of phenomenal growth, all Holy Spirit-driven, can indeed 
happen. And it's, it's, it's exciting to see uh, the, these principles not looked upon as simply a part of the history books of the, uh, the first century church or uh, the book of Acts, but rather a part of what God is doing today at Hillside Church. There are programs for everybody. You've got outreach ministry to uh, foreign languages. You certainly have uh, youth ministry, elder care, on and on the list goes. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, we do. We try to be a holistic church. I know that sounds trite, but, you know, here we are ministering to people. We, we are an intergenerational church. We are a multi-ethnic church, and we equip families. We equip the youth. We, we, have, we, we have, you know, we, we even reinstituted a nighttime service. It's 58 minutes long. We call it night school, where we take a topic, a theological issue, I speak on it for 30 minutes, and then it's like the Wild West of, like, Q&A. Mm-hmm. And th- this, it's a Socratic dialogue, and it encourages we get, we get We get, you know, on a Sunday night, we say we're going to get you. We start at 5, we end at 6, we go out to dinner together, or we hang out together afterwards. But we get it done in 60 minutes. We're not, it's not a seeker-sensitive thing. It is deep theology, and we we have a quarter of the church turn out for it, you know, and then we all have a great time afterwards. But we try to find every opportunity to meet the very real spiritual needs of our people, no matter who they are or what demographic they fall into. And I think that's why God has blessed this church over the years. You want to go to a church that when you get there looks like you. You want to go to a church that is engaged in equipping the saints for the work of the gospel and has a eternal vision that alongside helping you grow in your faith— to also therefore help equip you to reach others. And that really is at the core of the heartbeat of Hillside Church. Um, They meet at 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose. And uh, you can get complete information about service times and all the various uh, ministry opportunities and programs available by going to hillside.org. Simple address to remember. It's online at hillside.org. Or you can call them at area code 408 269-4782. That's 408-269-4782. And let me say to longtime listeners, um, Pastor Crosby's program is heard every Monday through Friday at 7 p.m. following Lifeline on KFAX Radio. If you want a little bit of a, um, a savoring, a glimpse, it's like going to the buffet and being offered a little taste of all the goodies. Uh, you get a chance to do that on the radio, but then we want to encourage you to uh, have an experienced part of the pulpit ministry of Hillside on the Air, then go and experience it in person. Again, at 545 Hillsdale Avenue in San Jose, online at hillside.org. Pastor Keith Crosby, thank you so much for the time and sharing a bit of your heart, your uh, passion for ministry, what God is doing in your life, and it's been a a great joy to spend this time with you. Greg, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me once again. Just thrilled to be here. The book of Daniel, by way of background introduction, covers the period of time from about 605 B.C. to about 537 B.C., roughly 70 years. It's a huge book in that its impact cannot be overstated. Its contents cannot be, uh, it's just, it's a book for our time, certainly where we're living right now, but it's a book about living in the present with an eye on eternity. It's a book that has drawn a lot of fire, a lot of criticism from uh, liberal theologians, and when I use the word liberal here, I'm not talking about politics, I'm talking about how they view the Bible, and how they view, they view Christ as a man, and they view the Bible as a book like any other book. And the reason it, adra- it attracts their ire is because it makes very precise predictions about the future, and nails every one of them, and there's just no explanation for that. So what they try to say is, oh, well, it was written after that it was, there was no such thing as Daniel. He never existed. And so some guy later wrote, I'm Daniel and I lived in this era and I predicted all this stuff. But the problem is, is that just doesn't hold water because Ezekiel, he was a contemporary of Daniel. He mentions Daniel three times. So this, there was a Daniel. And Jesus, Jesus himself in Matthew twenty four fifteen refers to Daniel. 
And as you're going to see as we get further into the book, there's the reason, the reason for uh, its uh, eschatological, its prophetic precision is it was inspired by a precise God who declares the end from the beginning. It has a lot of interesting supporters, certainly Jesus Christ, certainly other prophets like Jeremiah, Habakkuk, uh, Ezekiel were contemporaries of Daniel. But one interesting guy, and he was kind of a mess, it was the physicist and scientist we know as uh, Sir Isaac Newton, you know, Newtonian physics, and he was a student of God's word. And he says, if there's no Daniel, there's no Christ. If the book of Daniel didn't take place, then there is no Christ. And that would be true because Daniel presided over the sort of the return of the Jews to uh, Israel. And if it wasn't for him, Cyrus probably wouldn't have let the uh, Jews go home. If I had to give you a summary description of uh, Daniel, I could put it this way. Kings, kids, captivity, kingdoms, Christ. It covers all those things. Daniel is, uh, it's, it's, its grand theme is about God's control and involvement over the entire universe, right down to the affairs of average everyday people from kings, right down to the lives of four Jewish boys who were unknown and were kidnapped and taken away into captivity. It's about God's sovereign control over the universe from Judea to Babylon, from 605 B.C. to 2250 A.D. and beyond. Why do I pick 2250 A.D.? Because it's in the future. None of us know what's going to happen then because it hasn't happened yet. But God knows. Daniel is a book, a quick overview. It's a book about the future. It's a book about living in the present with an eye on the future, with an eye on eternity. Let me give you a quick overview of Daniel. Daniel chapter one is the backdrop, the setup for the book where the, where the three Jewish young men are taken into captivity. And there's a hint at the end of Daniel chapter one that Daniel served over 73 years. It says until the first year of Cyrus. Daniel chapter two is about Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And for those of you who know your Bibles or have a Christian background, it's about three Jewish men, young men, who refuse to compromise their integrity and worship anything other than the one true God, even at the cost of their own lives. Daniel chapter three is about Nebuchadnezzar's great pride. And, you know, he's going to throw them into the fiery furnace Uh, Daniel chapter four depicts Nebuchadnezzar's warning that Nebuchadnezzar was warned by God that I raised you up and I can knock you down. And that's where he deprives Nebuchadnezzar of his sanity and eventually restores it, which results perhaps in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, conversion. Uh, Daniel chapter five depicts the fall of one kingdom, Babylon and the rise of another, the the, uh, Medo-Persian empire. And we're introduced to Darius the Mede who's about 62 years old, who favors Daniel. And what we see here is Daniel is going to survive three or four regime changes. We look at Daniel's durability as he lives out his faith without compromise and is able to prosper nonetheless. It's a a lesson for all of us. Speaking of integrity, Daniel chapter 6 describes Daniel being thrown into the lion den because he would not pray to any other God. He would not compromise his own integrity. Daniel chapter seven records Daniel's disturbing vision. It disturbed him. And we see the rising and falling of kingdoms leading up to Antichrist and of course Christ's millennial reign. Daniel chapter eight depicts the rise of the Antichrist, a literal person. Daniel chapter nine depicts Daniel's uh, prayer for national, individual, and personal repentance. There's also a hint of the 70 weeks of Daniel, which is a prophetic thing that we'll get into. Daniel chapter 10 speaks to the assurance of Daniel's prayer that it would be answered. Daniel 11 is another picture of the Antichrist and his career. Daniel 12 is a discussion of the end of the world as we know it and as it exists today. If I had to give you a simple organizational outline, Daniel chapters 1 through 6 is about the prophet and his life. 
And Daniel 7 through 12 is about the prophet and his prophecy. Daniel was a prophet. Now on the surface, Daniel just seems to be a story of uh, dreams and four young Jewish men in their teens, boys really, and their struggles to live for God through a number of regime changes, as well as kind of a story about this antichrist that is coming. And on the surface, Daniel is also about Israel's history and its place in redemptive history, and we see how the history of Israel is put on a pause, and then there's the time of the Gentiles, and then the history of Israel picks back up again after that. We'll talk more about that later. But Daniel is about more than prophecy. It's about more than four faithful boys facing incredible choices. It's about a faithful God and his sovereignty. Daniel is about a holy God and his sovereignty and his involvement and control over everything that happens in the universe. Disasters may occur in your life and theirs, yes, but God is in control. That is the story of Daniel. As Jesus said, not one sparrow falls from a tree apart from your Father in heaven. Five sparrows are sold for two pennies, Jesus said, but you are more valuable than they are, yet your Father in heaven never loses sight of those sparrows, and that said, he never loses sight of you or Daniel. Daniel is also a lesson for us. There are principles and practices we can learn for Daniel and his colleagues in inch by inch living for God under the most difficult of circumstances, hence our Sermon series title, Living as Exiles, Living in Exile. What does this mean? You and I are not of this world. You and I are, are aliens. You know, years ago when I was living in Riverside, a man started this bumper sticker campaign, Not of This World. And you've probably seen this emblem somewhere. Well, that's true. You are not of this world. You are an alien. You are an egg. You are in exile. This is not your home. America or Tanzania or Russia or Greece or wherever you're from is not your home. You're just passing through. You're just passing through. You, you, you the, the culture's Practices are not your practices. You don't belong here. But God has put you here the way he put them there for such a time as this. And that's why I say you're not of this world. I was at the the Ligonier Conference, as I mentioned earlier, and Steve Lawson was speaking. And he said something in a very blunt and powerful way that stunned me I mean, the way he said it, and I cannot imitate Steve Lawson if you've heard him preach. But it's something that we forget sometimes because we, as Christians, don't want to offend anybody. But he preached this amazing sermon. And and he even talked about not being of this world. And then he said, you can't live in this world and, and condone things like the transing of children in the school system or the transing of our children in the culture or LGBTQ, that agenda, or abortion on demand and be a Christian. And he just said, so you either need to repent or be saved because There's no way. People say, well, you know, we're not supposed to get political. That is not political at all. There's no politics there. That's Christianity. That's basic Christian worldview. I remember hearing about a man who was at uh, a church. uh, You remember Prop 8, right? With, you know, the, the defense of marriage thing here in California. And he kept talking to his elder board about, when are you going to say something about this? And he got, and eventually he was called in. And he was told to, by either the elder chair or somebody, you know, you can, you can talk to us about this thing, but don't mention the Bible because this is a political issue. And shortly thereafter, he left that church. And I was like, I would too. I wouldn't want to be in a church like that. You know, we are not of this world. We are not of this world. 
we are in exile. The time is coming and now is that you're going to have to make major decisions about how you're going to live in this fallen world. Because as a Christian, you are not of this world. And that's what Daniel is about, these children in the midst of a storm. Years ago, I had my children read a book called Children of the Storm. It was the autobiography of a lady named Natasha Vins. It's a book for your family today. It was written a long time ago. Uh, she's still alive, but of course. She's almost as old as I am, I think, but uh, you know, not quite. But the summary of the book in, on Amazon reads like this, and I'm going to paraphrase. Young school-age Natasha receives pressure from her teachers to give her unquestioning allegiance to socialism and the state. The anti-Christian sentiment dogs her family's life as well. The Venn family faces imprisonment, humiliation, court trials, loss of jobs as part of the persecution waged by their government. As a young person, Natasha comes to resent her family's allegiance to Christ. In her teen years, Natasha begins to see doors closed to educational opportunities, to jobs, to acceptance in the community. And at some point, she must decide, she must count the cost of whether she wants to pay the price as a Christian. The Vince family found themselves living in exiles in their own country. Literally and spiritually, they were exiles in their own country. I believe that our children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren are going to find themselves in the same boat. And that's why we're studying Daniel. Like Children of the Storm, Daniel is a book about choices in the here and now. Daniel is a primer on living in exile as exiles, which is what Christians are, as the Bible tells us. Does the Bible really call us exiles? Am I making too much of this? No. First uh, Peter 1.17, what does it say? And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear, with reverence throughout your time of exile. There is no if you're in exile if you're a Christian. If you are saved, then you are in exile. And the Lord doesn't say this once. He says this over and over 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And you know what? It's not just Peter and Paul harping on this. You see this in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 in that great hall of faith, you know, where it talks about all these people who lived out their faith, imperfect people. Abraham, Jephthah, all these people. And in, in Hebrews eleven thirteen through 14, it says this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. You're seeking a homeland, and this isn't it, right? You have a heavenly home. The writer of Hebrews points back to all the heroes of the faith and reminds us that they were living in the present with an eye on the future. Now, the ones that they're describing never saw the fulfillment of that. They were Old Testament saints, and they never saw the Christ, and they didn't have all the revelation that we have today. But like us, they were exiles. Because you see, once you receive Christ, you're transferred into a new kingdom. You have a new king. You have a new loyalty. You are an alien, a stranger, an outsider. Sometimes, sometimes, even within your own family. Sometimes a a wife will come to Christ, but the husband doesn't, or a husband will come to Christ, but the wife doesn't, or the children will come to Christ, but the parents haven't come yet. And there's this difference. It's almost like uh, dialects. They speak almost different languages. They can understand each other, but sometimes it's hard to understand. 
And, and, the, and, the, and, and the reason is, is that we now see the world, we see our existence, our, our past, our present, and future through a different lens. We are not of this world. And so Daniel here is a book about living in the present with one eye on the here and now and one eye eternally, that is prophetically focused. He is an example for us how to live in light of prophecy. And he's living in a physical exile. And he still has to go to the office every day. You think about that. Daniel went to work every day in a godless country serving godless kings with people looking to pick a fight with him. And his example should not be lost on us because he provides us a blueprint, a portrait on how to live in that kind of tension. How to live in the here and now, understanding the coming apocalypse is closer each day and how to do that with a joy and a purpose and an effect that makes an impact on those around him. He doesn't have to go looking for trouble. Daniel lived eschatologically. Along those lines, uh, Martin Luther lived the same way. Somebody once asked Martin Luther, what would you do if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow? And I love Luther's answer. He said, if I knew that tomorrow was the end of the world, I would plant an apple tree today. In other words, he would continue living as he always lived. A lot of times for a Christian, they say, well, if the end of the world is near, I better get serious. And you know what? Too late. You need to live seriously every day. Because your life is not your own. It belongs to Christ, and you should spend it wisely. Daniel shows us how. Well, enough of uh, introduction for now. Uh, Let's read Daniel chapter 1, 1 through 7. Daniel chapter 1, 1 through 7. We're going to focus, we're going to come back and really focus on the first two verses. Daniel 1, 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That kind of gives you the date right there, 605 BC. The Lord, this is shocking, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. He, and he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought those vessels, brought them to the land of Shinar, Babylon, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of God. Talk about a national disaster for Judah. Your your king is defeated, The holy place is partially looted and the world as you knew it has ended. Verse three, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, his chief official, his right-hand man, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths, basically it's going to be teens, he wants the teens, he wants the young people, Why is that? Because they're moldable. Youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to to teach them, these young people, the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are Babylonians. So he, he wants to take the next generation, bring them to Babylon. They can serve him They'll go through three years of training, as we'll see. And then they'll they'll be ready to do what he needs them to do, maybe in in the administration of their defeated country and elsewhere. And they're going to be well taken care of, verse 5. They'll be very comfortable. The king assigned them a portion, a daily portion of the food that the king ate. They'd be eating from the king's table. And the wine he drank, better than Napa in those days. They were to be educated, trained, indoctrinated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, he called, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
of the tribe of Judah. Here are our four young men. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. So what we see here is the end of an era. Seemingly the end of an ethnic and national identity, to some the end of the world, particularly if you were Jewish. And what we see here, too, is an attempt to brainwash, indoctrinate young people. So not much has changed. Without realizing it, you're looking at something else here. And what you're looking at is kind of a sideways glance at one of the greatest battles in human history. Uh, Years ago, there was a movie called 300 about the clash between uh, Xerxes and the Spartans and the Greek city-states. This isn't it, but this is just as big, if not bigger. Both of those battles determine the course of civilization, change the course of civilization. And what you're seeing with Nebuchadnezzar coming into uh, Judah is really the pinky finger on a larger thing, and that is the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC, what you're seeing is this. You had the Assyrian Empire and you had the the uh, Neo-Babylonian Empire. Two superpowers. The Assyrian Empire, think of as like the United States, maybe. Think of uh, the Babylonian Empire, maybe, as like China or Russia or something like that, or a combination of two, whatever it was. And basically, bang, they clashed. Okay, and the Assyrian Empire was defeated, and anybody who backed them got hammered. And guess who Judah backed? They backed them. And so Nebuchadnezzar, defeating this huge, huge superpower in decline at Carchemish, turns his attention on Egypt and Judah for backing him. There's all kinds of documentation about this. This is why this is so important, because Daniel and his friends... These powerless teens are going to be inserted into this new superpower that basically has Nebuchadnezzar conquered the known world, kind of like Alexander the Great, only he was more brutal. Uh, And despite people claiming that this never happened, I told you, you know, that there are liberal scholars. Liberal scholars is kind of a contradiction in terms. Uh, But anyway, but the evidence, they found all kinds of archaeological evidence as always, and it confirms the Bible. I won't walk you through all of them, but one I find particularly interesting is a, a tablet. It was like a newspaper, that w- uh, except it's made out of clay or stone. It was a cuneiform tablet that was published. It was discovered in 1956. It was published in the spring of 605 BC. And on it, there's like a headline that says, Nebuchadnezzar conquered the whole area of the Hatti country. Hatti was, a, was a, like a became a a Babylonian province, but it included Syria and what is in Israel. And so we have documentation that these things are true. The corrupt king of Judah backed the losing side. And in verse two, you know, we see that he was, that God gave him into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, into the hand of this pagan conqueror. And Nebuchadnezzar took things out of the treasury. I mean, can you imagine what it was like to be in Judah or Jerusalem. Now, they're going to take these hostages and, and Judah is going, to keep dis, uh, is going to keep rebelling and there are going to be two more deportations before Nebuchadnezzar wipes out Jerusalem and the temple. But what you see here is what some people thought were the end of the world. You know, and, and we, you know, we live in an era, everybody's panicked all the time. The world's going to end. So, the Jewish people thought the world had ended at that point. They didn't know that God was in control. They hadn't realized it because they had drifted so far away. But God was in control. But we've lived through it ourselves, right? The French Revolution was supposed to be the end of the world. World War I was supposed to be the end of the world. The Great Depression was supposed to be the end of the world. World War II was supposed to be the end of the world. The Cold War was supposed to bring the end of the world through nuclear holocaust. When I was in seventh grade, we were supposed to have an ice age in the year 2000 that would destroy the whole world. And now it's climate change destroying the whole world. Guess what? 
the world isn't going to be destroyed and, and there's nothing that anyone can do to make the climate better or worse. When Jesus comes, everything's going to be wiped clean. You have, the, you, know, you know, the other thing that really irritates me is you have these Christian prophecy experts hawking their DVDs on YouTube. Notice that they never sit in a pulpit anywhere. They're prophecy experts. And you know what? The world isn't going to end until God says so. Don't buy the DVDs. And for whatever you do, don't send them to me. Okay? Because they're going to go in my oblong file. Okay? It's the uh, thing that has this little button you can push to and it shred things. But anyway, yeah. So what's going on here is there's this storm that's come. And the king of Judah, <laughs> Joachim, he's in that storm. And so are these Jewish boys. They are children of the storm, just like Natasha Vins. They've been ripped away from their families. They've been taken away, taken hostage, taken captive. They're going to have to learn a new language. They have new names, names which, were, which bear uh, obedience to the gods of Babylon. They're... They're going to be deprived of their culture and, and if, if Nebuchadnezzar has anything to do with it, their religion. And they are powerless. They're going to lose their identity. That's the goal. Now, it wasn't just these four. It might have been another hundred or two also. But God zeroes in and we have this scripture on these four. But how in the world could that happen? How could God let that happen to those kids? How, do, how does all this happen? It's just one word. God, and there's another word, sovereignty. This was the will of God. This was the plan of God. You see it in verse two. Verses one through two, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, by the way, Jehoiakim was put on the throne by Pharaoh Necho, so he's not even a legitimate king anyway. King of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave. The Lord gave gave. You're going to see this phrase, the Lord gave or God gave, over and over again in the book of Daniel. Why is this significant? Well, in your English Bibles, a lot of times you see the word Lord in all capital letters. You're not going to see that here. This is a different word. It's the word Adonai. And one commentator writes this, God was not asleep, but in full command of the situation, indicated by the name for deity selected by the author. In verse 2, the word translated Lord is not Yahweh. It's Adonai, meaning owner, ruler, sovereign. By use of this expression, Daniel was emphasizing the sovereignty of God, which is the dominant theme of this book. And you're going to see that God is sovereign over Jehoiakim's situation and this seemingly unrelated situation of these four Jewish boys. God ordained the exile. Even in the midst when God punishes a nation for disobedience, the righteous often suffer along with them, and you see that with these young men. But God places them there, and they wind up in key locations like Joseph did when he became, went from being a slave in prison to the prime minister of uh, Egypt, these guys are going to end up running the show in Babylon. There's another thing in here that often people miss here, and that is the value of good parenting. And commentators don't really talk about it much. And when I've heard sermons on Daniel, nobody mentions it. But you know what? Somebody instilled integrity and, and allegiance to Yahweh in these boys. And these boys, I mean, they had, must have had a good mom and dad because the integrity and the faithfulness to God that they show in the face of impossible circumstances cannot be missed. So I would say to you, and remember you heard it here first, folks, that Daniel is also a tribute to good parenting. So, initially, Daniel is a powerless hostage who finds his way to live for God. He, he's not a revolutionary. He doesn't cause trouble. He never tries to escape. He's a model about living in exile as exiles. But through his witness, through his conduct, through his integrity, he ends up in the seat of power, and he witnesses to Nebuchadnezzar. He witnesses 
to Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's successor. He witnesses to Darius the Mede, and he witnesses to Cyrus of Persia, who will set the Jews free, which we talked about in Nehemiah. They came back. So the question is, is will you learn from Daniel? Will you learn from Daniel? And as somebody once said, every good sermon has a so what. So now, that's all introduction. We come to the sermon, which is really the application of everything we just talked about. I want to give you three takeaways as we review an application. Three applications from Daniel 1, 1 through 7 that you can apply in your life in the here and now so that you can live for God, so that you can live as an exile in exile without compromising your integrity as you bear witness to Christ. Takeaway number one is this. Know that in every natural or national disaster, God is in control. God is in control. Where do we see that? Daniel 1, 1 through 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Here we have this apparent disaster, the siege of Jerusalem. God gave the king into the hand of an invading army. God gave the invader some of the articles of the temple. But everything happens for a reason, right? Because God punishes sin, and Judah had sinned and not listened. There are consequences. So you have this pagan king having his way with the people of God. And you can't miss what goes on here, and this kind of lays out implications for the rest of the book. In those days, pagans, unbelievers, measured the power of your God by the power of your army. So if my God was bigger than your God, we could whip up on you. And so this was a double humiliation for the Jews because those gods of Babylon, at least on the surface, appeared to whip up on Yahweh and take the king and things out of Yahweh's temple. And so this humbled a stiff-necked people. And everyone, as I said it before, is affected by disasters like this. Sin has collateral damage. And the people of Israel were corrupt. Their government was corrupt. Their worship was corrupt. And the righteous suffered along with the unrighteous. Where do we see that? Daniel 1, 6 and 7. Among these captives were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, and Mishael he called Mesach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So here are these young men who we know are righteous because we read about everything they do and think and say later. And because their government was corrupt, their corruption affected them in a very painful manner. They are ripped away from their families and taken hostage. It's going to happen with you. You know, our government with its, I mean, we have probably the most perverse government in the world right now in power in this country. I mean, just imagine this, you know. And there are going to be consequences that affect you spiritually, physically, economically. That's what's going on here. But know this, takeaway number one, that in every natural and national disaster, God is in control. God is at work. Takeaway number two, understand Understand that God is in control of the present, the near future, and the distant future. God is never asleep at the switch. God is in charge of everything. We'll come back to Daniel 1, 1 and 2, and just look at the fact that you have this invasion. The third year, Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. And verse 2, and the Lord gave... Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. The Lord gave. God gave. This did not surprise God. How do we know that? How can we be sure? Because Habakkuk, in Habakkuk 1, 5 through 9, said this was going to happen. He said this was going to happen. Let me read it for you. 
So Habakkuk here, there's a dialogue between God. Habakkuk is praying, and he's praying to God, how can you let this country go down the tubes? How can you let this happen? Do something. We have, an, we have a corrupt government. We have corrupt leadership. Do something. And he does. Habakkuk 1, 5 through 9. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are imperialistic conquerors, we would say today. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They are a law unto themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. I don't like the sound of that. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. And looky here. They gather captives like sand. Captives like sand. Habakkuk predicted this. God gave him this revelation and he wrote this down. He, God, Yahweh, repeatedly warned Israel and Judah. Israel was carried off by the Assyrians to who knows where. And Judah, which would be Judah and Benjamin, to repent and they wouldn't do it. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, prophesied, you know, that they would be carried off for 70 years. I mean, and finally, because the people did not repent, God brought judgment. Daniel 1, 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he gave captives in a series of deportations. But he also gave hope How do we know that? Well, Habakkuk said, this is what's going to happen. It happened. But in Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11, and 11 is one of the most misquoted and misapplied texts in Scripture. But in Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11, Jeremiah lays out what to expect. So we know God is in control. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill you my promise and bring you back. To this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This was his promise, not to you, but to Israel. Nonetheless, understand that God is in control. God is in control of the past, the present, and the future, of Israel, of Judah, of you. Nothing happens by accident, even the trials that come through the collateral damage of our leaders or anything or anyone else. So what happened? God gave Judah into Babylon's hands. God gave these young men, these captives, into the king's service. God gave these Jewish boys their Babylonian names, and the Lord gave So takeaway number one, know that God is in control of every national and natural disaster. Takeaway number two, understand that God is in control of the present, the near future, and the distant future, as we're going to see more of. And takeaway number three, grasp that he will preside over the decline of every nation, like ours. Every nation has, like people, have come with expiration dates. I have an expiration date. You have an expiration date. We're all going to die. Nations have expiration dates. This country has an expiration date. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. The Lord gave. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But can you, again, imagine the the shock of the Jewish people. But they didn't understand that it was all part of God's plan and the Lord gave. God was in control, presiding over it all, all of it, just as he is in your life right here and right now today, right now. 
But remember this, this understanding of God's sovereignty. There's shocking things, disturbing things that we read here. But you know what? We let scripture interpret scripture and there's hope all over the place. Luke 12, six and seven reminds us that God is sovereign. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, Jesus says, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not, you are more valuable than many sparrows. He's talking to the Jewish people, yes, and he's talking to you and I down through the pages of history, down through the pages of scripture. God is sovereign. All that is going on is part of history, his story. And more importantly, everything that happens from a sparrow falling from a tree or a fender bender or somebody taking your catalytic converter, God is involved in all of it. He's involved in your role. God is in the details. Five sparrows didn't go for much back then, and yet God was in the mix for them. And so don't miss the statement, fear not, for you are more valuable than five sparrows. No matter what happens tomorrow, next week, next year, 10 years from now, Daniel gives us a picture of how to live as exiles in exile. As he lives there, he's about 16 when he gets there, and when we leave him there, he's about 85 years old. And he survived at least three to four regime changes. Not just Daniel, but others as well. And he predicts the rise and fall of the Medo, you know, Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks, and Rome, the rise of Antichrist, and the coming millennial kingdom of Christ. The question is, how then shall we live in all these contexts, under all these circumstances, as we read this and think about our own life. And the answer is from Daniel, watch and learn and do so without fear, do so without anxiety. Look to God and not to men. So, you're not ever forgotten if he doesn't forget the sparrows. Know that God is in control, God is sovereign in every national disaster he knows the past, the present, and the future because he's ordained it. And even the decline of this world that we live in, and even this country, God is in the details. So what do you do with that? You trust and obey. You trust and obey, number one. Number two, you know his word, do his will. That's part of trust and obey. And if you don't know his word, study his word. Because you cannot cram for life. You, you can't play... You need to start playing catch-up ball now. And I'll tell you why in my closing illustration. 62% of people in America believe in reincarnation. These are the non-believers. Believe in reincarnation, crystals, energy in mountains in the forest, and astrology. In the same Pew survey, it said that 62% of Christians, same number, believe in reincarnation, crystals, energy and mountains, astrology, how would they fare in Daniel's time? How will you? Because you are an alien and a stranger. You are not of this world. And you're going to have to function in this world for the rest of your lives as an exile because you belong to Christ. Your life belongs to him and you must spend it wisely. Pastor Dr. Keith Crosby from Hillside Church of San Jose. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.